The first reading is from Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jim, for the invitation to be here. It's always a joy and a privilege to be back here. In fact, Judith and I are back in New York City at the moment as part of the 20th anniversary of the formal founding of Christ Church in New York City. And in fact, it was this very month, 14 years ago, that out of Christ Church we birthed what becomes Emmanuel in, uh, at the end of 2015 going into 2016. And it was in that context that a search committee made the invitation to one Dr. Jim Saladin. It's always a joy and a privilege to be here with you and to have the opportunity of catching up. Unless you expect the unexpected, you'll never find truth. It's hard to discover, hard to attain. So write, so wrote Heraclitus, the 6th century BC Greek philosopher. Last century, G.K. Chesterton wrote, truth must necessarily be stranger than fiction. For fiction is the creation of the human mind and therefore congenial to it. With those thoughts in mind, come with me to that first reading this morning. It's on page nine. It takes us back over four millennia to a time of technological advance, to a time of a series of most unexpected events. For in Genesis chapter 11, we read of new developments in building technology. Bricks were used instead of stone, tar instead of mortar. The new technology sparked ideas in the fertile imaginations of architects. We can build a city and a tower, they said. Their scientific discoveries became a prelude to cultural revolution and economic change. There are new cities, a new era in civilization. 
Now, there's nothing wrong in, nothing intrinsically wrong with technological change. The question is, what do we do with the new ideas? Technology can be used for good or ill. The keyboard that taps out poetry can also be used to produce pornography. The software that enables an architectural masterpiece can also design a missile. Art, skill, technology can deprave as well as ennoble. Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, speaks of the incredible potential of men and women to do great and exciting things. But what intoxicated humanity was an affront to heaven. Men and women who regarded themselves as the measure of all things, able to control the course of the world, able to build better worlds, were ignoring one great reality. They were not the center of all things. Their desire was later echoed by the Greek philosopher Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. But we are creatures, not the creator. There is another layer of our existence that remains hidden from view. God exists beyond space and time. He knew far better than we can ever begin to imagine that we are not good enough to control the power we could harness for ourselves. What would God do with the tower builders of Genesis 11? Would he shut down the existence of men and women whom he had made in his own image? No, for to do so would mean that he had been defeated. Rather, he chose a very different path, one that would be extremely costly to him. To start with, he spoilt the language. He frustrated communication. People couldn't understand one another. And in doing this, Genesis chapter 11 tells us that God scattered men and women. Human cooperation was now frustratingly difficult because of the social, ethnic, and cultural distinctions that arose. God struck at the heart of an essential feature of what it means to be human. Made in God's image, we have the capacity for relationship. But we've got a problem. We want to be like God. We want to be in charge. Since the events that we read about back in Genesis chapter 3, all men and women have attempted to block God out of their lives. And as a consequence, God has frustrated relationships, our social and community life. And that's what's happening again in Genesis chapter 11. The future looked bleak. Separated from one another, men and women would feel isolated, alone. Indeed, when we think about the scenes of human disobedience that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, 
the desire to be in charge that we read about in Genesis chapter 11, we begin to understand what happens when people turn away from God. 45 years ago, Christopher Lash, in The Culture of Narcissism, wrote, Our society has made lasting friendships, love affairs and marriages increasingly difficult to achieve. Social life has become more and more warlike, and personal relationships have taken on the character of combat. And Lash wrote this before the development of social media. <laughs> to return to the book of Genesis, we find when we turn the page into chapter 12 that God did something much more than break up communication. He intervened with mercy. He intervened with mercy. He set in motion a plan that could reverse the human divide. What he did laid the foundation for the rest of the biblical narrative. His plan had a very small beginning, that a day would come when the world would feel its impact. For onto this scene of darkness, God shone a ray of light. It was his initiative alone but it would involve the cooperation of men and women. At the beginning, just one man. It's a narrative that's stranger than fiction. Two great themes stand out. First, God spoke. Just look at the opening lines of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God is not just some remote superintelligence with awesome power. He's nothing like the force in Star Wars. He has personality and he speaks. God was stepping out of the silence of the cosmos to summon Abram to action. Now, God speaking this way raises a question or two for us. Should we continue to expect God to speak to us this way? As the pages of the Bible unfold, we see from time to time that God does the unexpected and speaks to individuals. He did to Moses in the wilderness, to Rahab through God's people, to Ruth through her mother-in-law, to King David through a prophet. And in the New Testament, Matthew tells us that God spoke to Joseph in a dream. Luke tells us that an angel spoke to Zechariah and that the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary. But as God's unfolding revelation progresses right from the beginning, we find that his purpose was that his word, his revelation, would be written down. From the time of Moses, he primarily speaks to us through his written word. However, there may be rare moments when God alerts us 
to something that he's got in mind. If you'll permit me a personal note, in July 1998, when Judith and I were visiting and enjoying a Circle Line ferry trip around Manhattan, we both experienced an unexpected idea at the very same time on the East River. Would God have us minister in Manhattan? It was an extraordinary, seemingly impossible thought. However, it prepared us for an unexpected invitation from Tim Keller in July 2000 to set up a reformed Anglican church in the city to complement the ministry of Redeemer. Indeed, when Tim Keller presented Judith and me to his church board in June of 2000, he likened our experience to Paul the Apostle being called by the man from Macedonia. Experiences like this are rare. If God wants to speak to us outside of the scriptures, he will do so. But let him take the initiative, as he did with Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, God summons Abram to leave the security of his family. And that wouldn't be easy. He had to leave the known for the unknown. It meant trusting God at his word. But God not only spoke, that's the first big point. Second, he made three promises. Look at verse two. I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I'll curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You'll be a great nation, God promised Abram. And Genesis chapters 15 and 17 spell this out in more detail. God promised his people the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Abram's descendants would be great in number. Genesis chapter 15 tells us that they'll be as countless in number as stars in the sky. They'll enjoy harmony, peace, and prosperity. Your name will be great, God promised Abram. Your name and the name of your people will be known and honored Abram and his descendants would enjoy a relationship with one another and win the, the recognition and respect of others. No, God was not just mouthing words. He was making a solemn covenant with Abram and his descendants. So who is this God? What's he really like? Can he be trusted? Unexpectedly, he, the creator of the universe, was intervening in a world that is consumed with self-interest and consistently ignores him. Yet God was committing himself to promises that would ultimately reverse the consequences of the actions of the tower builders of Genesis 11, but more significantly, 
He promises, his promises would reverse the tragedy and shame of paradise lost of Genesis chapter 3. If we want to understand the storyline, the framework of the whole of the Bible, we need to etch God's promises to Abram in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and, sorry, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 in our minds. So how would Abram respond? Look at verse 4. Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai, his brother's son's lot, and all the possession that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. Abram obeyed the call. His family had been part of a migratory movement from the region of ancient Ur on the Euphrates. They had traveled to Haran in the northwest. And now Abram and that small family group traveled south into the land of the Canaanites. In verse 5, we read that he traveled on to Shechem, which is at the crossroads in ancient Palestine. It's a pass between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It was there, some seven or eight centuries later, that Moses challenged Abram's descendants to choose between God's blessing or his cursing. Verse 7 continues, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him building an altar at the center of ancient Palestine was like raising the flag of the, promise, of the promised land. And from there we read on, Abram moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. That's the area today to the southwest. It's a dry area today to the southwest of the Dead Sea. Genesis chapters 11 and 12 tell us of God's justice, but also God's mercy. God is perfectly just in not tolerating human rejection. He's also strangely and extraordinarily merciful. The prayer of humble access in the communion service, the service of the Lord's Supper, captures this wonderful understanding when we acknowledge that God's nature is always to have mercy. This is our God. He's willing to forgive us all our faults and failures when we turn to him in genuine, heartfelt repentance and faith. So let me ask, do you know this God? Is this the God to whom you've turned 
asking for his forgiveness from the bottom of your heart? Is this the Lord you have chosen to love and to honour throughout your life? So what happened following God's extraordinary promises to Abraham? Well, during his lifetime, Abram's name was extended to Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. And about a thousand years later, during the reign of King David, Abram's descendants inherited the land God had promised, from the river Euphrates in modern Iraq to the river Nile in Egypt. And during King Solomon's reign, there was peace and prosperity. Furthermore, there was also peace with the neighbouring nations. The Queen of Sheba in North Africa came and visited Solomon. There was peace across that whole region. But following Solomon's death, the great kingdom divided. In 721 BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians decimated the southern kingdom, Judah. What had happened to God's promises? Over the centuries, prophets such as Nathan, Isaiah, had arisen and spoken of another king, a king who would rule over all the nations. His kingdom would be everlasting. His rule would be just and merciful. So to press on, how do God promise, God's promises continue into the New Testament? Well, the Gospel of Matthew has Abram as the starting point of Jesus' genealogy. And in, in that reading from Luke's Gospel, um, we read that Zechariah makes reference to God's promises to Abraham when he speaks of the birth of his own son, John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. And he continues to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, that second reading we had, the Apostle Paul writes, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Some 2,000 years beforehand. And God had said to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. And Paul writes, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How then do the nations come to be blessed? Modern translations give the idea that we're to ask God to bless us in the same way that he blessed Abram. But the point is more subtle, because when we go back to chapter 12 of Genesis and verse 3, the language is, win for themselves a blessing. 
And that suggests that we need to identify with the God of Abraham. That may not be the starting point, but certainly we ought to come to understand this. How do we do it? By responding in faith to God's promises, as Abraham had. For us, it means turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine, heartfelt repentance and faith. And when we do, as the Apostle Paul writes, we become beneficiaries of God's promises to Abraham. Further on in Galatians chapter 3, we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then Abraham's offspring is according to promise. No human philosophy, no human political philosophy, no system of world rule will ever prevail outside the framework established by God in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 2 and 3. The great nation refers to the final day when the company of all God's people from every tribe and every tongue will be gathered into God's presence. This vast crowd, countless in number, will be the fulfillment of God's promise all those centuries ago to Abraham. The social harmony, the recognition, the name, the glory that the builders of Babel wanted without reference to God will be theirs. I said that the biblical narrative is stranger than fiction. God has promised to honor his words to Abraham. He'll do it. The question is, do you believe it? What then can we look forward to? Those of us of a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation chapter 21 lifts a corner of the curtain on the ultimate scene. We read, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with his people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We don't have to build a tower to reach to heaven. For God himself has laid a foundation for a city whose glory is far beyond anything that we've ever dreamed. The heavenly Jerusalem will be at the heart of the new heaven and the new earth. God's King, the Lord Jesus, has done everything needed through his cross and resurrection to open the gates so we can enter in. It's a narrative 
that's truly much stranger than fiction. But we're assured it's true because of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. The Lord Jesus invites you and me to walk with him one day in the streets of the New Jerusalem. In his Pensee, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French mathematician and philosopher wrote, but the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Christians is a God of love and of comfort, a God who fills the soul and heart of those whom he possesses, a God who makes them conscious of their inward wretchedness and his infinite mercy who unites himself to their inmost soul, who fills it with humility and joy, with confidence and love, who renders them in incapable of any other end than himself. So let me ask, have you truly found this God of Abraham? Have you turned to the Lord in faith trusting his promises as Abraham did. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.